welcome to the Good Question with Jessica Tanderup podcast. I'm Jessica, and I have a passion for asking hard questions and going deep in conversation. Usually, these discussions happen over dinner or coffee with a close friend. But on this podcast, I bring them to you because I want you to know if you have questions, you're not alone. On this show, I invite apostolic leaders, thinkers, and fellow believers to tackle the tough topics questioners face as we strive to live out our biblical mandate to love God, love people, and take the gospel to the whole world here in the 21st century. I hope you'll stick around because when you know Jesus is the answer, every question can be a good question. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. I can't believe it, but this is our last episode of season two. I know that flew by so fast. It has been such a blessing to be able to chat with all of these missionaries and missions-minded world changers. What a lineup we've had. I pray that something you've heard this season has impacted you and has given you a burden for the work of the kingdom around the globe. If we haven't done that so far, I'm certain today's episode will. Make sure you stick around at the end today so you can hear the release date and theme for season three. That's right, we are coming back and we're excited about it. I hope you will be too. But first, today we wrap up this missions-focused second season with an energetic and inspiring conversation with the General Director of Global Missions for the United Pentecostal Church International, Brother Bruce Howell. It was an honor to sit and chat with Brother Howell, to hear his story of how he was called to missions and the challenges, victories, and changes he's seen in the work of God around the globe over the course of his ministry. If you've been listening this season and have felt a burden growing deep down inside for missions, I hope this episode gives you some direction, some guidance, and some inspiration to take the next step toward whatever and wherever God is calling you. Listen in to my conversation with Brother Bruce Howell. Brother Bruce Howell, welcome to the Good Question Podcast. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be with you today. We're so excited to be able to talk to you on this mission season. And I know a lot of people know who you are, but we'll just start the way we always start and have you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are. Okay. My name is Bruce Howell. I am Global Missions Director for the United Pentecostal Church International. I'm beginning my 21st year as General Director. And uh, two years before that, I was regional director. Twenty years before that, I was a missionary in El Salvador. And then I also was over Honduras as well, an area coordinator for the northern part of Central America. Uh, I am a widower. Two and a half years ago, God decided to take my wife home. And uh, I uh, miss her very much. And uh, it's not been an easy journey, but God is faithful. And I thank the Lord for his help. I have three children, my son Jared and his family. He has three children, and they pastor in Columbus, Ohio. My oldest daughter, Leah Arrowwood, married to Andrew Arrowwood, they pastor in the Indianapolis area, Noblesville, and they also have a church in Seymour. And then my youngest daughter, Amy, is married to Dennis Euchre, and they are missionaries to Europe. They have been serving in Latvia, especially in training in that area. So that's a little bit about me. Maybe too much. I hope that's not too much. No, sir. That's perfect. I love that. I love to hear about um, a legacy of ministry and service in a family who had an example to follow God. And then all of your kids, it sounds like, have taken up that mantle to continue the work of the kingdom, which is just fantastic. 
We did get to speak to your son-in-law, Dennis. Um, He was on the podcast and we enjoyed talking with him so much. Got to meet him and your um, daughter and your grandson at our church when they were coming through on deputation. So it's a small, small world in global missions. It is. It really is. (laughs) Well, tell us your story a little bit about going all the way back to the beginning. You mentioned that you were... Your your beginning in ministry or in missions was in El Salvador. Um, tell us about how you felt that call to to global missions. Okay, let me just, I'm going to go way back to when I was saved, and I won't take much time with that, but I am from a little town in southern Illinois called Heron, Illinois. Uh, I had a grandmother whom I never knew that I later found, on, found out a long time afterwards when I found a Bible in my mother's things. My grandmother had been baptized in the 1920s in Jesus' name at the First Pentecostal Church in Heron, Illinois. Uh, I have a picture of that church. I have a picture of my grandmother, of course. And I have that Bible that she won in a Sunday school contest on December the 27th, 1936. Wow. And so I didn't realize that I really had a family like that in the church. I had two of my aunts that were in the church. But I got in the church uh, because two girls invited me to church. It was a revival. I was filled with the Holy Ghost. I then, later on, I went to Bible College at Gateway College of Evangelism, where I met my wife. I did not really, at that point, think I would be a missionary. I just thought I'd probably be an evangelist or a pastor. But then when my wife and I married, we went to Jackson College of Ministries. I graduated from Gateway, and I taught there for three years. I pastored an annex off of the first church in Jackson. At that time, the church was running right at 1,500 people, and the church was so full, they bought another building, and I pastored that for a little while. Then I went full-time as dean of Christian education at Jackson. And it was while I was there that there was a missions trip that was taken to Central America. That trip that was taken to Central America was in the year of 1977, uh, my first time to go overseas. I remember going, we went to Guatemala, we went to El Salvador, we went to Costa Rica. And really, it was on that trip that God called me to El Salvador. Mm. And uh, I applied. I met the board in 1978. I was told that uh, they were not going to appoint me, that I needed to wait, which I did. I came back to the board. I was very persistent, kind of like the lady that kept knocking on the door. (laughs) And uh, I kept knocking on the door, went back in May of 1979, and my wife and I were appointed to El Salvador. We had two children at that time. We had uh, my son, Jared, who was about three years old, maybe not quite three. My daughter, Leah, who is my eldest daughter, she was maybe a year and a half. And uh, we were appointed that year. Deputation only took four and a half months. By December the 31st, 1979, we were in language school. And uh, I'm, yes, and then we studied there, then went to El Salvador, where God had called us. There was a civil war going on in the country. Mm. My family, who were not Christians, my mother was not saved at that time. They didn't understand us doing that. And I even had friends in the church that were very, um, they, I mean, they loved me and they wanted me to have my ministry, but they didn't really, were not real happy with me taking my kids to a civil war. Mm. But we did. We lived there for 12 years in a civil war. When I went there, I don't know how much detail you want. 
<laughs> I'm loving this story. So I have I have follow-up questions, but I can hold them until you are ready. So you just okay. keep going. Okay, I'll hurry, but I don't want to get too, in too much of a hurry. No, okay, okay. Uh, when we went to El Salvador, I'll never forget, we, we went to work with Brother T.W. Drost and his wife Wanda, and they had three boys, Stephen, Daniel, and Mark. And we just were going there to do Bible school work because that's what I felt like I was going to do. Well, two weeks after I arrived there, I received a call from headquarters asking me to go to Guatemala. I did not feel that, and I told them I didn't feel that. In fact, even before that, before I met the board, they wanted me to go to Panama. But I said, no, I feel like God has called me to El Salvador, and I Mm. stuck to my guns on that. So anyway, Brother Dross then accepted to go to Guatemala. We then at that point, of course, I'd been in 10 months of language school. I was able to read a message. I was able to understand some things. But when you learn a language, there are just many kinds of colloquialisms and things you don't understand until you live in a place a while. Mm -hmm. So Brother Dross went to Guatemala. He pastored a church. He was over the Bible school. He was also the president of the work. He wanted me to become president of the work. I would have had to have been elected, but I just didn't feel like I was capable because I couldn't understand everything that went on in the board meetings. Mm. So I was elected secretary of the <laughs> national work. Well, that was very interesting because in all sincerity, what literally happened is I began to supervise the work as secretary, but he was close to me. He mentored me. He was a, he's, it was a great missionary. He passed away a couple of years ago, but a great pioneer missionary that taught me many principles of revival along with my pastor, Brother T.L. Kraft, who is still my bishop. In fact, just spent the night with him about 10 days ago. And uh, he's 90 and he's weak physically, but his mind is so sharp. But anyway, he instilled in me this passion to reach the lost. Revival was going on. I began to pastor the church. And in that church, we had, let's see, we had Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. We had Monday night. We had Wednesday night. We had Friday night. We had Saturday night. So I was in services all that time. I was teaching in Bible school. I was over the Bible college. At that point, we had 100 students in our first year, and I was teaching 14 hours a week, which I had to study so much to, to prepare my messages. And then as a leader, I preached out three times a week. Hmm. So needless to say, I was pretty busy, I but bet. it was a great time. It was a great time. I enjoyed pastoring. I think pastoring helped me to understand the culture of the people, yeah. and I enjoyed pastoring. And um, during that time, we just, God blessed, God anointed us in our time in El Salvador, in 1993, the Shrekhises left Honduras, and they asked me to oversee that work. So I took that work on additionally, which was about a five-hour drive from San Salvador. But during those years, we lived in very dangerous times, but very exciting times. I remember the first time I preached was October 26, 1980. I preached in Spanish. And mm. I remember it was in a little place called Congo. It was in a little church that's made out of mud and, and rocks. And we had 100 people filled with the Holy Ghost wow. in, that little ch- in that church. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. <laughs> and so anyway, that's, you know, I can go on, but I don't want to talk too much. All right. Well, I have a question for you going back to the very beginning. So we've, we've had this whole season. Your, your episode is going to air at the end of the season. And I, I really feel that through the course of all the different missionaries that we've spoken with and all the different experiences that we've had, that we have people listening to this podcast who feel a burden in their heart for missions and they're not sure 
what it means. So my husband and I were recently appointed to go as Amers to Denmark. We're in the process of raising funds for that. And Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. All we have is our own experience, right? The Lord put this on my husband's heart. But at the beginning, we didn't know what it meant. We didn't know if we were supposed to support them financially and in prayer, if we were supposed to go for a short time. And we still don't. We still don't fully understand what it is the Lord is wanting us to do other than that we're, we're raising some money. We're going to go for a set amount of time and then we're going to see what he wants us to do from there. So when you say that you were in El Salvador and you felt God call you to go, can you talk about practically, like how did that happen? Was it a voice that you heard? Was it a um, an impression in your spirit? Was it that you saw a need? Just practically for people to kind of figure out what the Lord is asking them to do. How did you determine what it was that it was specifically a call to go. Okay, number one, it was not logical. Mm. In Guatemala and Costa Rica, the other two countries we visited, both of the missionaries there proselyted us and did everything they could to get us to come to their country as missionaries. Mm. In the country of El Salvador, there was not one word said. They didn't mm. say a word. The country of El Salvador was in tremendous revival. The other countries really, it would have appeared that there was a greater need than there was in El Salvador. And so God knew that. When I went back, I did not hear a voice. It was just a burden. Uh, I worked as a minister in the first church of Brother Craft there in Jackson, First Pentecostal Church, and I directed service, but I remember many times sitting on the platform and I would just begin to weep as I began to think about the people of El Salvador and the people that needed to be saved. Mm -hmm. And it was just such a burden that got a hold of me to go there. Once again, it was not logical. There was a civil war going on. There were people. When we lived there, we had to use to dead bodies laying in the road. Mm -hmm. My kids had to get on the floor of the car. One time there was a missile that came through the wall of our house while my kids and I were inside it with my wife. You know, it wasn't logical, but God had put that call in my life. And when I was turned down the first time by the board, then you would have thought, well, maybe I need to go somewhere else. But I, I, and I really tried to pray about it, and I mm -hmm. asked God to let me do it. But He, He just kept. I felt that burden to go, and that was what really the initial call was. It was a burden that I felt. I had prepared myself, and it looked like at that time the greatest need that was there was the Bible college. They had a Bible college going, but it was only a three month program. And of course, I wanted to put in a three-year program. and But it really it really was not logical. I would have to say it was not with human reasoning. It, God knew exactly. And as I look back, I'm 68 years old. And as I look back on my life and see what all God has done, man, it's just amazing to know how God directed us. But it was the internal impression that I had and the love I felt for the people. So that would be my, that would be my answer in brief. It was yeah. a, an impression. I love that. Yeah, that's a lot of the same way that it's happened for us. Kind of just that burden that will not go away. Yeah. And and you finally start to say, hey, I need to pay attention to this and and start walking toward it and just see what doors the Lord opens up. That's exactly right. Walking towards it, walking through the doors that God provides for you. You know, I, I as I look back, even in my life, how God prepared me when I was in Bible, when I was, I was baptized by Leroy and Becky Sherry, who were missionaries to Australia. In fact, a few months after I was baptized, they left and went to Australia. Then when I was in Bible college, I was president of the missions club my first year. Well, I didn't know what that, I mean, I didn't really feel to be a missionary, but God was preparing. <laughs> 
mentoring me through all of that. Then I met my wife, who was from Jackson, Mississippi. I'm from Illinois. I didn't think a Southern girl would have anything to do with a Yankee. And <laughs> you know what? We got married. I met her her pastor, Brother Kraft, became my pastor. You know, it's just amazing how that God guides you and you walk through those doors that God has. And sometimes it doesn't even seem logical what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's again, I mean, we've we've covered this on the podcast already, so I won't go into it for all of our listeners, but again, that's exactly how it happened with us. My husband was in the military, and when this first this call first came, it literally made no sense because we were committed to this career. And you can't just leave the army whenever you feel like it. <laughs> so we exactly. were like, God, exactly what does right. this even mean? And then God just started closing doors, like slamming doors in our face in the army and moved us right on out to get us where we need to be. It's just crazy when we look back at it. But he knows what he's doing. Yeah, let me say, I'm so excited about you going to Denmark. I was just on the phone with my daughter, Amy, who they lived in Denmark for three months, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, I just am so excited for you to go there and work with the Brett family. Wow, what, what, what a great opportunity. And I want you to know I'm excited for you all. And maybe if the Lord allows, I'll be able to come and visit you there. Yeah, we would love that. I was smiling when you were saying that when you went into El Salvador, there was not a word said to you about coming there because that was exactly how we felt when we went to visit Copenhagen in 2018. I was still very much on the fence about whether or not we needed to go there. My husband was very sure that we did, and the Lord was having to work on me a lot. And um, I think one of the things that would have really um, put up a big barrier for me was if there was a, a huge pressure campaign to get us yeah. to come there. And Pastor Chris was just so laid back about it all. And he just, he prayed over us in that service and said, God, like, if that's what's supposed to happen, that's what's supposed to happen. But you know, and he was just so uh, open-handed with the whole thing that it really gave me a lot of peace. So I think that's really, I think that's really, really good. So now you are, you have, you are a missionary and then you've been in different positions in the organization as far as administratively. What does your job now as the, the general director, what does that entail? Well, number one, it entails, of course, the administration of global missions, which is pretty complicated. It would be, I have to be honest, when I was elected 21 years ago, I remember when the election took place, it was like, uh, uh, number one, I did not really expect it to happen. But when it happened, it was, uh, I went for three or four years where probably I wouldn't even open up for questions because I sure didn't know what the answers were. <laughs> I still don't know, but at least I know where to go to find them now. Yes. So, uh, But anyway, but what it entails is the administration of maintaining a vision, maintaining the purpose of Jesus to every tribe and nation, send the message, train messengers, present Jesus, uh, produce self-supporting, uh, self-propagating, self-governing churches, and establish truth and fellowship and holiness. Now, that's, uh, of course, that's our ex exact statement. But what it entails is administrating, keeping a vision for reaching the lost, uh, setting goals to make sure we're doing it, have the administration set up for us to minister to the missionaries, but also to our national works, to make sure that we have all programs to minister to so many different areas. Really, it would be difficult for me to tell you everything, but I would say my main job is to maintain vision, 
to keep us on the mark of reaching the lost, discipling the lost, and also reproducing the church around the world. And uh, I thank God that God has helped us. Of course, I have a great team. I have a secretary in the office uh, who is elected. I have a director of promotion and a director of short-term missions and education. Those two positions are appointed. We have six regional directors. We are getting ready to appoint a seventh regional director because we have now formed a new region. And uh, we're in a project right now of reaching unreached people groups. Wow, it's so exciting. And of course, I'm 68. I'm not a young man. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be in, but probably will not be a long, long time because it's time for younger men to take over. And uh, hopefully I can stand here and help them with everything I can. But basically, it's the administration of the work worldwide. And of course, it goes from our what we call our office management team, the four of us in the office, to the regional directors, to area coordinators that are over areas in the regions. Then, of course, we have field superintendents, our, our superintendents of nations. Some of those are missionaries. Many of them are nationals. And then, of course, each national work is set up according to the size and the culture of the church where they are, and, of course, even the political setup where they are. Mm. So that's that's kind of what I do in a nutshell, and uh, it's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> that whole um, organizational structure, I think, is something that a lot of people, when we see missionaries come through our churches, we don't understand how many levels of organization and administration there are in there that are uh, I'm assuming they're for the protection of the missionaries and to, to make sure that we're covering all of our bases as an organization. Can you talk a little bit about the difference in, is there a difference, is there a goal of of uh, a missionary going in and, and then turning a work over into a nationalized work, or does it just depend on the country or... No, every nation, every place we go, our goal is for the people that are indigenous in that area to be over the work. Mm. Of course, there's different areas. Now, in global missions, we have three works. We have what's called a work. That is when you go somewhere and you start something, and sometimes it's one or two churches, and it's really not a national organization, but that's our goal is for it to grow. For example, let me think. We just recently opened our latest work is in Mayotte. Uh, that is in Africa. The youth ministry helped us with that. And in that country, we do not have a North American missionary. We have a missionary that has come from uh, Madagascar, who okay. is in Mayotte. And so they go, and that's a work. Now, this may sound funny. Then the next one is called an organized work. Now, you say, well, is a work an unorganized work? Well, not really unorganized completely, but it probably does not have bylaws. It's not been registered with the government yet, and so forth and so on. So the work is a very beginning stage, and that's where we go. The next is an organized work where there is bylaws, what we call a constitution. The church is registered with the government, and generally we have more than one church and we have numerous churches. And of course, we have works around the world where we have maybe one, two, or three churches. Then the next phase is what we call a nationalized work. That is a self-supporting, a self-propagating, and a self-governing church. Now, what self uh, supporting means is that they are self-supporting in their administration, that they operate their own administration, that they have enough money to send their leader to uh, 
to world meetings and to participate and also have a national office that's in operation. The self-propagating means that they are growing without people as foreigners having to do it. Mm. They are growing and there's revival and they're starting churches. They're seeing new ministers. They have a training program. And then the self-governing is when they elect their own leader, And that election, now that doesn't mean that a missionary cannot be elected. That's according to every constitution of the countries. But there are many places I know of where missionaries, while they elect their leader, they have elected the missionary. And uh, they want, uh, really, they want the missionary to remain. And of course, Mm -hmm. that's the way it was. I was elected in El Salvador. I was not appointed. But in an organized work, Global Missions and the General Board appoints the leaders to those countries. So that that kind of gives you. But our goal is for the work to be a nationalized work that is self-supporting, self-propagating. That means they have revival, they're growing, and self-governing. I hope that answers that question. Yeah, it does. It does. That makes a whole lot of sense. Um, I, I really love that. You mentioned that you have a missionary from Madagascar going into this new work. And that kind of leads into the next question that I had for you, which is, what are what are like the requirements or qualifications for someone becoming a missionary? Do you have to be from North America or can I mean apparently not because you mentioned that this man is from or this person is from Madagascar. So talk to me a little bit about if someone's going to trying to pursue uh, a calling into missions, what are some of the things that they need to know that are kind of some requirements as they get started? Okay, number one, you've got to realize we have two programs of missionaries. We have what's called the North American Missions Program, and we have over 1,200 missionaries in that of all different levels of appointment. That begins with what we call educators, then it goes up to Next Steps, which is a two-month program where you go and work in a country for two months. Then we go to the AIM program, Associated Minister, which is when people travel back and forth and they just go and preach, but they don't reside on the field. Then you have AIM, Associates in Missions, which is what you folks are doing. Mm -hmm. Then we have an Associate Missionary, which is an appointment It's not an employee, but it's an appointment. We would consider it almost a full appointment, but an associate missionary is not an employee. Then the last two levels of appointment are intermediate and career. Now, I know that's a lot of information, (laughs) but, but that is North American. That's the North American program. If someone wants to become a missionary... We don't live in the 1950s or the 1960s where it was difficult to go and visit foreign countries. If someone really feels that they want to go and visit uh, or they feel a call, then I think it's important in the day and age that we live, and we do have restrictions with COVID, but it's very important that somebody go and visit. What these short-term programs do is they let people kind of test the waters to Mm -hmm. see if they really want to be a missionary or not. And now, by the time, for example, next week, we will be meeting four applicants. Mm. And those are people that almost, I'd have to look at them, but I think every one of them have been associate missionaries. They were aimers, which is associates in missions. Then they became an associate missionary, and now they're applying for intermediate appointment. So now we have a process that people can get involved in. Now, if someone is from another country, each region has what we call regional missions program. The people from Madagascar 
that are in my yacht never met the Global Missions Board in North America. They went through the region. The gotcha. region has a regional missions program. They go there. They are appointed there, and their finances come from the countries in the region. Now, we do give a little help, but it's not much. But our finances in the regional missions program has gone through the roof. Right now, we have right at 70 regional missionaries, and those are people from other nations that are missionaries. For example, we have missionaries from um, Brazil that are in Mozambique. We have missionaries from the Philippines that are in countries like Macau. Uh, and so that's the regional missions program. So that's, gotcha. okay. I, I could talk forever on that, anyway. <laughs> well, that makes sense though. So then, so then if I understand that correctly, that means that in order to do uh, like deputation and raise funds in North America, you need to go through that process on the North yes. American missionary side. Yes, and, and that's Canada and the United States. Gotcha. Because really, even the Canadians that travel in the United States, we have to get a special visa for them. Oh, and wow. so people from other countries, it's uh, it's become very, very difficult to do that. And so that's the reason we created the Regional Missions Program. And we will never reach the world by just United States and Canada sending missionaries. Every yeah. one of our countries need to send missionaries. And you know what? I believe one day some of those countries will send send missionaries to North America to maybe minister to the people that they have that have migrated here. Yeah. I hope that happens. Yeah, that's amazing. It's such a, it's so different. Like you said, the world has changed so much to make all of this international travel so much more accessible. It's just, it has to be good for the furtherance of the gospel. I would only, I can only imagine, I can't, I can't imagine that it can't be. So, so then when we're talking about the process of deputation for the North American missionaries. I know I've heard from different people that it has a, a huge impact on the works in the country when they leave to come back. Is there any kind of effort being made to reduce the amount of time that, that people have to spend away from their, from their countries to come and raise funds? Definitely. Uh, let me just give you a little history. When I came into missions, and please, this is no reflection on the past, you know, works grow and we have grown. We have grown tremendously. And there was a time that we were struggling with missionary deficits. And so we were we were spending money. You know, some missionaries had money, some did not. But we have done a lot of work. And I thank God for the team that I work with, past and present, that have helped us now. In fact, I don't think there's probably any anybody, if only maybe one or two missionaries that might be barely in deficit. Mm -hmm. So right now, what's happened, we have been able to see our missionaries have enough money that we don't have to force them to come home. In mm -hmm. many cases, we are allowing people to stay longer than normally we would have done. But on the time factor of traveling to raise the funds, there was a time when people traveled, some people traveled as much as two to three years to raise their budget. Mm. I'm glad to report to you right now because of many things. Number one, uh, missionaries have been good stewards. Our administration have been good stewards. And, and the church has just supported us tremendously. The fellowship of the UPCI has been unbelievable. And so as a result of that, we also have instituted what is called I Am Global. Mm-hmm.
I Am Global is an offering that is sent, and that's helped us. And also because of the money that missionaries have in their account, the average time, the last time we did it, and this was pre-COVID, because after COVID, we haven't been able to do a real uh, accurate study. But our average time for a career missionary to come home and raise funds is only 5.8 months. So it's a very brief time. And so... I thank God that recently we have been able to work to help people not to leave their works because there have been many people that have had to start a work, they left, and when they came back home, they lost everything they had when they came back home. We are chiseling away at that. We don't have a complete answer, but thank God that the accounts are in good enough shape that we don't have to make people come home. They can stay longer, and when they do come home, it can be for a very short amount of time so they can get back and take care of the work. So that's what we've done to help in that. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So we one of the um, episodes that we did this season was talking about access challenge nations and places where um, openly having uh, a work in those countries is dangerous, <laughs> to say the least. Yes. How do how do we as an organization fund those kinds of works? I mean, I would imagine for those missionaries to be openly raising funds would also be dangerous. So what kind of things are in place as much as you can talk about it um, to kind of move uh, missionaries into those areas of the world? Well, what they do when they travel is basically they go to the churches and they explain, please, this cannot be on social media. And uh, we've even had some that if one in particular preached a general conference and we, di- we, we did not give their identity of who they were because they were from an access challenge nation and we could not let the people know who they were. And uh, it was at a general conference and we worked very hard on that. They also preached another large meeting and we were able to hide their identity. And that's basically what we do. And of course, I've got to be careful because I know this will go over the web. But, you know, we, we do have to be creative. We do not talk about them. We do not give their names. We do not tell exactly what they're doing. And there's just ways that we're able to do it. And being that this is going to be on the web, I have to be very careful what I say. Of course. And um, there are there are ways. And I thank God that things are happening all over the world. And it's it's so exciting. Wish I could tell you about it. But I can't. <laughs> of course. Of course. Yes. It's um, it's such an amazing it's such an amazing time. Uh, one of the things we've talked about uh, with every missionary that we've spoken with is how has, you know, the Internet and social media impacted your work. And for that particular episode, it was so eye opening to think about how the internet and social media is actually a detriment in that area. And you, and the missionary was talking about how um, she's had to, to kind of pull herself away from social media and learn how to not share everything and to not need the affirmation that comes with sharing things on the internet. And so that was a very interesting perspective. We think that technology is all great, right? Uh, But sometimes it's, it's, there's pros and cons for sure. Exactly. And you know, the thing is, it's, it's just so exciting to see what God is doing. And uh, I just, um, I, I wish I could share, but I can't. <laughs> and uh, we've had some, we've had some situations that we've had to, you know, we've had to work with. To be honest with you, this COVID situation has taught us to be flexible like we've never been before. Mm. And while it's been difficult, I think it's been good for us. It's been a great learning experience. And really, I thank God that things are continuing to to go very well. Yes, that's amazing. So focusing um, on, again, you mentioned that 
you were talking about how you the goal is to get our every country to move towards a nationalized work where um, the indigenous population is leading the work. Are there any um, efforts made in our demographics as far as the North American missionaries that we're sending um, to to try to match up with the demographics, the diversity of the globe, or is it just dependent on who is willing to go? How does that how does that all work out? You know, at this point, to be honest with you, it's like with me. I think number one, and this is not a cop out. We depend on God to call. Uh, because there's only one thing that will keep you on the field when you go through adversity, and I speak from experience. You know, when I received a call telling me that I had two weeks to get my children out of the country or they were going to be killed, Mm. and they told me how I took my kids to school, they told me enough to know that they were watching everything I did. I mean, the only thing that could keep me there was not guards around the house, even though we did that. Uh, The only thing that could keep me was not changing what I was doing and changing up the way I took my kids to school. The only thing that could keep me was not global missions telling me we're going to take care of you. The only thing that could keep me was not the government saying we'll protect all the foreigners that are here. It was only the call of God. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that we depend upon God's call in order to minister to people. But we do depend upon recruitment. And I think that what we do, and of course, you have to be careful because you mentioned it. You didn't want pressure put on you. Right. (laughs) Nobody put pressure on me. But I do think that we are doing our best to let people know where there are needs. And even though fields are nationalized, they want missionaries because there are things that we can do as missionaries. For example, let me give you an example. Right now, my wife passed away. I'm going to do a memorial in El Salvador. I have a little over $100,000 now, and I need about $400,000. I'm going to build a school in El Salvador. My wife started a school. It's going to be a pre-kinder through high school. And the goal that we had when she had the school there, it's closed now, but the goal was to help poor children receive a good education. I preached at General Conference. I don't know if you were there for the, for the children's ministry service, but I brought one of those students that was her student in school, brought him to General Conference. He is now a millionaire from mm. El Salvador. And it all started through that school. So there's a need for missionaries, even though the work is nationalized. Right. But I do believe that what we have to do is recruit But in recruiting, we have to let people know these are the needs that we have around the world. Mm. We need a Bible college uh, president in this place. We need to open this work. We need someone to help us in in maybe a medical clinic or or, or, or orphanage or uh, evangelism, you know. So that's what we have to do. We, We let people know what the needs are, and then we place it in God's hand as we try to recruit. Yeah, I love that. You talked about how your part of your job is to set the vision and keep the vision high. So what is your what is your vision? What do you see as the future of global missions um, going forward from 2022, hopefully in a post-COVID world? Number one, we we have allowed COVID to get us in a maintenance mode a little bit, even in global missions. But I began to work on that. Next week I will meet. There's what's called strategic planning committees for each region. And of course, goals are going to be set. Uh, I've always been someone that believes you have to set goals. I thank God that in 11 years, we doubled our constituency overseas. And that was when we lost our largest work in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And I thank God it wasn't easy, but we have to have goals. So what we are doing is we want every nation, 
every sub-region, every region, and worldwide. We want to set goals for people repenting, people being baptized in Jesus' name, people being filled with the Holy Ghost, training of ministers, new churches, preaching points in churches, and of course, a number of students in our training programs. So these are things that we have to do. We have to set goals. So our goal in 2001, when I was elected, we were in 146 nations and territories. I thank God for a great team that we have worked together. Today, we are in 232 nations and territories. There are 210 nations in the world. We have churches in 199 of those. Now, stop. Mm. That doesn't mean we've reached the world because many of those are very small. Even in a field like Venezuela that has nearly a half million constituents, we haven't reached them. Philippines that has 1.3 million constituents, they have a population of 90 million. We Mm. haven't even scratched the surface. So we need more missionaries. So when I say what we've done, I sure don't want people to think we don't need new missionaries. Mm. We do. So our goal is to see every nation with a church. We only have 11 more nations. Some of those are very difficult, but we only have 11 nations where we need churches. But along with that, in many of those nations, there are groups of people that have never been reached. Let me give you an example. In India, in the United Pentecostal Church International, we claim, and this is according to our statistics, that we have over 5 million constituents, just a little over 5 million. In India, there are over 50 people groups of over 5 million people that are unreached. Mm. Yes, we have nearly 1,000 churches in India, but 50 people groups that have never been reached. Right now, we are working on that. I can't tell you everything because we're not ready to launch it, (laughs) but there are some great things happening. So our vision is a church in every people group, a church in every nation, and to continue to see people baptized and to see the church grow. Yeah, that's amazing. So much progress and so much still left to do. Yes, so much left to do. Oh my, so much left to do. But it's exciting to see what God has done. And it's exciting to talk to you that are going to be a part of that. And sometimes we feel like that our part is so small, but you know what? It's all of us together, working together, that's going to help us to see that. Yes, sir. Well, this is exciting. I know it's it's giving me energy and uh, inspiration to keep going. I know that there are people who've been listening this season who are going to be inspired um, to reach out and and see what their next step could be towards a call into global missions. We're so excited you were able to talk with us today. The final question of our show is always the same question. We are the Good Question Podcast, so we like to ask every guest, what is a good question that you're asking yourself lately? The good question that I'm asking myself is how can I get out of this post-COVID time and keep us focused on reaching the lost and renew our vision and not be in maintenance mode? Mm. And uh, we're not, but we could have slipped into that. And so that's the question for me. How can I make sure that we keep the vision before us in the midst of some very difficult circumstances? Yes, sir. I think that's something we're all having to grapple with, um, getting out of that. I like how you said that, out of that maintenance mode. Yes. Because life has to keep going and we have to keep moving forward. So I'm so thankful you could speak with us today. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your vision and your leadership. It was a, a great blessing to chat with you today. 
Well, it's great to talk to you, and please greet your husband and and everybody that's listening. Please go to our website if you're interested in missions. There are opportunities there. Talk to a missionary. Go visit a mission field. Give, pray, do everything you can, but most of all, reach somebody right where you are because that's where mission starts. It doesn't start in Russia. It starts with your neighbor. Amen. Amen. I love that. What a way to wrap up season two. Thank you so much to Brother Hal for spending time with us, sharing his heart and his vision and giving us a peek into the structure and organization of the Global Missions Department. It was an honor to chat with him and pick his brain a little bit about following the call of God. If you've been struggling with what God is whispering to you because it doesn't make sense, maybe find a place in your journal or Bible or on your bathroom mirror where you're gonna see it on a regular basis to write, it's not logical. What a powerful reminder. God's ways are so far above our ways, it doesn't have to make sense. If you're wanting to take a step in the direction of Global Missions, check out the website Brother Hal mentioned, globalmissions.com, and look into the list of short-term missions options they have available for you. There is still so much work to be done to spread the gospel around the globe. I hope you'll get involved through giving and praying or by telling the Lord, I'm willing to go. What a joy this season has been. I'm a little sad to see it end. If you're still wanting more conversations with missionaries, you can go back to season one and check out episodes 34 and 35. In episode 34, we chatted with Baron Carson, who is currently serving in France. And in episode 35, we talked with the general superintendent of the UPCI of Japan, Les Clevenger and his wife, Laura. Those are both great conversations if you missed them. And the moment you have been waiting for, season three of Good Question will focus on all things apostolic music. We'll chat with artists, worship leaders, musicians, and more. I can't wait to share it with you. Mark your calendars for Tuesday, April the 19th, 2022, when we will share our first episode of season three, talking with recording artist, Brittany Scott. I promise you do not want to miss it. Okay, I'm done. That's a wrap on season two. Thank you so much for listening, for sharing, for your comments and messages, letting us know what the podcast means to you. We love to see those come in. If you're not following us yet, come find us on social media. We're on Instagram at Good Question Show, and I'm at Jessica Tanderup. That's Jessica T, as in Tuesday, A-N-D-E-R-U-P. You can also find us on Facebook, and our email address is goodquestionshow at gmail.com. To follow along with Team Tanderup on our short-term missions adventure to Denmark, we're at Tanderups for Denmark on Instagram and Facebook. That's Tanderups with an S, the number four, Denmark. This podcast is a production of Good Question Media and is produced and hosted by me, Jessica Tanderup, my co-producer, editor, and the man who seriously keeps this whole operation running and without whom I could not make this podcast is my husband, Dave Tanderup. Our audio engineer is Josh Powalczyk. That's it for season two. We'll be back here on Tuesday, April 19th with another good question. See y'all then. Hi, Brittany Scott. Hi, how are you? Good. It's so nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you too. Are you having a good day today? Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) I love your song, God Unstoppable. Really? Oh, I'm so glad that you like it. It's a pretty fun one, huh? Yeah. What's yours? Um, I do really like God Unstoppable. And I also like um, Be Exalted, which is the slower one.